So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, the last Friday of March, the 31st. Tomorrow is April 1st, of course. Don't be pranked. So kids that want to put rubber bands on the vegetable sprayer at the kitchen sink to keep it on, stuff like that, be aware. Tomorrow's prank day. This is episode number 202 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm really glad that you're here. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below, and everything will be there, and there are going to be some links, and you're going to want to check them out. You are. So what's going on outside? 41 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's rising. 100% chance of rain today, along with high winds. Isn't that great? In opposite land. That's 5 degrees Celsius, and uh, of course, 90-some percent humidity, soon to be 100% humidity while it rains. So, uh, the things that we're going to talk about today were submitted to me over the past week. If you want to know how you can submit your own topic for consideration, please go to the website, thewaytobe.org, and there's a page there also titled, The Way to Be. And you fill out the form, and then it comes to me, and then we see what goes on. And speaking of topics and things that people have suggested, I was really excited because yesterday, and I didn't get permission to use his name, so I'm just going to say thank you to Rick B. And for recommending a YouTube video to me. And this video has only been out for a few days, and at first I thought, eh. When I saw the subject line and it says, we are counting the wrong bees when it comes to our Varroa management. I thought, what do you mean, wrong bees? Well, there's some bold statements made here. Like, for example, we've been blowing off uh, the potential source for Varroa mite counting, and that's on the actual drones. And so the shout-out for today, I'm not waiting until the end of the video to do it. I'm kind of reversing things and doing the fluff section a little in the beginning. Why? Because I don't want any of you to miss this, because I think it's that important. I actually think it is something. In other words, uh, just because somebody comes out and says that uh, the science hasn't caught up and, and everybody's been missing the mark until now, you have to take it with a grain of salt. As I always say, question everything, look into everything, and feel it out. Does it make sense to you? Okay, so I'm going to name the doctor, Dr. Zach Lamas, L-A-M-A-S. And uh, he's done serious research, and of course his research is involving... Um, the study of drones, which are, as we should know, they're the male bees, and a lot of people don't feel bad for them, but drones are actually vectors right along with the Varroa destructor mite. And there are some very interesting things. So if you want to find the link to that video, it's going to be down in the video description below. Highly recommend you watch it. It's a little over an hour long, but his presentation is about two-thirds of the way through, and then he fields some questions from viewers. So... Uh, the title and, of course, the hosting YouTube channel will all be linked down below. Please tell them that I said hello. I commented on it because I was actually pretty excited. Because, uh, well, first of all, don't reject stuff just because it sounds too sensational. You know what I mean? Somebody comes out and says, I have the answer to something that everybody's been pondering for a long time. And it's always not, you know, straightforward. It's not that simple. But see, what happened is... What Dr. Zach Lamas did was, uh, it falls in line with what I already kind of think would work, and I have something to add to it. That's what makes the day exciting for me. And that's because um, it kind of makes sense. We do spring 
varroamite checks for those of you who do. Backyard beekeepers have the time to do more than commercial beekeepers. For example, if you're setting up a varroamite testing and counting system for a commercial yard and they have, you know, 500 colonies of bees out there, uh, they do a sampling. So they do a 10% sampling, right? But if you're a backyard beekeeper, your sample could include 100% of your hives. And uh, this topic falls in line with something that I was already thinking about. And I already have a page on my website on how to trap your queen, cage the queen, probably is a friendlier term for it, cage the queen onto a frame of brood. And then we create an artificial brood break, and that's later in the year. And why do we do it? So that we can have all open brood throughout the rest of the hive, and I'll have that link also in the video description so you can read what that is, uh, caging your queen. And then, of course, uh, once the brood break happens and the rest of the hive is broodless, we know that we have a very good efficacy, so a very effective varroa mite treatment. And so since I use oxalic acid vaporization, the mites are phoretic in the dispersal phase, and then we get them. So that's not new. The other thing is, uh, what's not new is that we know that varrodestructor mites like to seek out drone brood when it's there. This is key. And it was really interesting because um, some people pull drone frames as a means of mite mitigation. It's chemical free, which is really appealing to a lot of people. So because there's no other treatment other than the physical removal of drone brood, and then, of course, they're out of the hive. And then we talked about how to feed them to your chickens if you have those. Some people have said woodpeckers and uh, nuthatches and all these other wild birds will also eat the, the drone brood if you set it out for them. And so they learn, too, that that's good protein. <clears throat> but here's a twist. That's not new. Varrodestructor mites get in there. Why? Because they get two reproductive cycles out of a drone that's going through its pupation. So a pupating drone um, provides a lot of resources, a lot of food, and also uh, a longer cycle because we know that the drones take from egg to adult 24 days roughly. So that's not new, but here's what happens and why this is really interesting. There are many reasons why this is interesting, but uh, we do spring checks, and who do we count? We count the nurse bees. I say that myself. Get your nurse bees off of the frames of brood that have open brood because that's where your varrodestructor mites are because they're waiting for your brood to get to its, you know, ninth to tenth day when it caps over and the little varrodestructor mite, foundress mite, the female, scoots right in there and starts reproducing as soon as that cap is covered, Right. And uh, we'd like to get that under control. And so we use a lot of things to do that. And one of the ways you can do that under your capped uh, brood would be uh, Formic Pro, for example. But all these things are complicated and people have challenges with them. And uh, let's go back to the biology of the bee. We're counting the workers. And that's the premise here by Zach. Uh, we're counting the workers at a time when there's rapid drone buildup too. When do we do our splits in spring? We do it, at least I recommend it, if you're under control of that and you're manually directing your splits and making more bees, more colonies. Uh, we look for a lot of drones because we want the drones to be out there. And if there are a lot of drones in our own backyard apiary, then it stands to reason that drones are in other 
hives and colonies as well so that they will be out there and our virgin queens will fly out and they'll have plenty of drones uh, to compete for mating rights with the queen. Very important in my opinion that they compete, that they fly, that they outfly each other, that the most powerful drones make it and so on. So this is the, this is the twist. Because in spring, uh, before the nectar flow is on, is because we don't want to mess with our hives once the nectar flow starts because we want those bees to be fully productive. And for some people, the spring nectar flow is it. Like that's the time that they're going to get honey off of their hives. Here where I live in the northeastern United States, uh, we have a couple of really good nectar flows. So we have spring and fall and a moderate flow throughout the summer. So I'm not as bad off as others, but I know I'm going to get to the point here. Um, what was interesting is that one of the reasons that they say, and the studies are here, and that's why you need to watch this video, I think it's very important. He explains the whole process. And I'm going to help with the process, by the way, hopefully. Um, what happens is in spring, the reason that we're getting very low mite counts uh, is because we're counting the worker bees. That stands to reason. And I've even said it because I've read it and because I've heard it and because everybody recycles it is that when the drone emerges from its cell, uh, that any mites that are on its body, where do they go? Well, they hop off of the body and they migrate on over to a nurse bee because that's where all the fresh goodness is. All the great nutrition is in the nurse bee body. That's what we all think, I'm included. I recycle that information myself. That's why we test the nurse bees. And that may be true at other times of the year when there are not a lot of drones. So this is the kicker for the whole thing. This is the aha moment on it. Is that we're not counting drones. What, you ever try to count a drone? Could you imagine, we can get uh, nurse bees and when we're doing counts, we scoop them off with our little half cup scoopers and the nurse bees kind of stay in the bin and then those that are older can fly and they fly away. Nurse bees can fly too, they just don't know where to go. So they hang out for a longer time in the bin, so that makes it easy for us to test them. But in the presence of newly emerged drone brood, so we have brand new baby male bees running around in the hive, guess what's actually most appealing when there's a lot of drone in, when there are a lot of drones in your hive, they're actually more appealing to the Varroa destructor mite than the nurse bees. And this does not hold true throughout the life of the drone. So this is all key. So we know that they're reproducing in the drone cells and they're going through the pupa phase. And then when they get out, uh, we assume that they're scooting on over. The blind little Varroa destructor mites are getting on the nurse bees, but they're not. According to the study, and it really made sense to me the way they presented it. The young drones are, you know, they're still full of great nutrition. They're still fat. What is bigger and fatter than a drone honeybee inside the hive? Nothing. So they actually determined from counting them, so the physical work has been done, uh, they counted rotostructor mites on drones. Specifically, the mites appeared to be attracted to drones that were two to three days old. So as soon as they've come out of their cells, they're actually continuing to be magnets for Barroa destructor mites. That is really interesting. But then how do you count them? 
because in the study, and please watch the video because I think it's it's going to be great and it's going to be eye opening. And of course, while I was watching it, you know the the wheels are turning because what they were doing was very labor intensive. They were grabbing drones off of the frames of the brood frames. So wherever there are drones uh, present and they appear to be new, they're collecting them by hand. And their sample rate was 40 drones uh, per hive. And of course, uh, you know, we're normally getting 300 worker bees and then we're getting a percentage from that. But uh, they're picking them up by hand. So drones, they're big and they're on the frames. Usually they're kind of loitering around. They are fairly easy to grab, but you're going to grab 40. That's time consuming. So here's what I was thinking. Because we're also talking about isolating the queen in a queen cage so that we can create a brood break so that all the varroa destructor mites are exposed so that they can be treated. Do you see where I'm headed with this? What if we took drone comb? Now, maybe you've already got drone comb in your hive, and if you do, good for you. This is a drone frame. They're always green. They're distinctive. That's so you don't forget about what it is, where it is, and why you're using it. People use this as part of integrated pest management. Now you notice that this one does not have the comb drawn out, so it needs to have comb drawn out. Here is what I'm recommending you do, and let's all, well, let's all. I can't direct everybody, but I hope I can encourage you because guess what? This is peak season. This is just in time training for the northern parts of the United States. We can actually get a hold of drones, keep them confined, wait for the varroa destructor mites not only to emerge from those drone cells, but then the rest of the mites that are phoretic or in their dispersal phase, they are apt to go on the physical bodies of the male bees in preference to the nurse bees. So we actually have what most of us have been looking for and wanting for a long time. We have varroa mite bait, living bait. We have drones. So I'm going to explain my thinking and you tell me if I'm just totally off my rocker or if you think this would work. I think it's going to work. I'm excited. I was thinking about this while I slept last night because it seems so obvious. So we let them build out the drone comb. They start building uh, laying eggs in here. The queen will lay eggs in here and then of course it starts filling up. Now we've got thousands of drones on this frame in production. Now when they start getting capped, what should we do? We make sure that the queen is off the frame. So now this cage that's designed to isolate the queen is actually designed to keep what in? The drones. Drones can't get through queen excluders. So here's the cage. This was in the cover image of today's video. This is a brand new piece of gear here in the United States. I bought this. I paid full price for it at Better Bee. They have nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. This is just on me. So this is a queen isolation cage, but then I thought drones can't get through queen excluders. So what if we take the drone frame, which is fully laid in, both sides, hopefully, the more the merrier. And then we drop that right into this cage. And we center it up. And look at the ends. You're looking at the ends thinking, well, if a queen were in here, 
she would get out and go right over the sides and therefore the drones would too and they would get out unless there's a cover for it and there is so now it's covered and forget forget about queen isolation this is better but it's seasonal this happens in the springtime when your colonies are building up their drone numbers for obvious reasons spring is swarm season that's when they reproduce yada yada so now we've got drone comb in here capped uh, ultimately and then guess what's going to happen the drones are going to emerge from their cells and then they're going to be running around in here and the nurse bees can feed them through the bars so they're not going to starve out and die they can also live in here for several days because one of the concerns was well they might defecate inside the hive if they can't get out well, it's just like on cold days, uh, the worker bees and the drones can hold their waste material in their bodies for an extended period of time. So I recommend that we keep them in here beyond emergence for three days. It's not an exact science, but guess what? Remember, this is new to me, maybe new to you. If we isolate the drones, we keep them in here, they're living for row destructor mite magnets. Now, the next question you might have, how do we get the Varroa mites? How do we get our count? Well, this should really help out uh, Dr. Zach and his team too, because no more hand picking them. We've got them caged. We know where they are. And now what we can do is non-lethal control. That's right. We can put them in a Tupperware bin with a hole at one end and a little exit hole, like a 16th in diameter. And then we use CO2 at the other end. This is an airtight container that holds this whole cage. We hit them with CO2. They pass out immediately. CO2 is fast acting. And I use the bicycle CO2 kits. They are, you know, they're designed to you know, inflate your bicycle tire if you had some kind of incident on the road and you need to pump up an inner tube really quick. Anyway, it knocks out the bees and the drones. Now, they're not dead. So then you can pull the frame out with all the drones. You can shake the drones out into that same Tupperware bin. And now we have all these drones there and we can pick them up and you can actually look for the mites on the underside of the drone. You can use tiny tweezers and pull the mites out one by one if you want to, or just like a sugar shake, you can put the drones together and you can shake them through a screen and shake out the Varroa destructor mites, which by the way, also are only asleep. So you want to keep control of those rascals. But to me, what a great way to, first of all, attract phoretic mites in the hive to a caged drone brood, to actual live drones, and then to control them by putting all of them into a bin. And now you have the option to wipe them out or just knock them out or you can you can use you know Don ultra free and clear in water and you can treat it just like a water wash or a you know an alcohol wash for example and you're still going to get an immediate count now how many mites would matter right I don't know and I don't care because here's the thing you just nailed those drones and uh, you nailed the Varroa destructor mites that are on them and based on the pictures that they were showing in the study, some of these drones had multiple mites on their bodies. And the very fact that we're relieving the mite load from our nurse bees at a critical time of production, right? 
that now they're on the drone so we can get them out of the hive. Now, would you have lost the reproductive power of that colony of bees? Now, here's the flip side of that. Uh, you could decide to treat the colony based on a high uh, varroa structure mite count on these drones, but you've also removed them from the hive. So interestingly enough, I marked the timestamps on this video, but an hour and nine seconds into the video, Dr. Lamas says um, that this could be your sole method of controlling varroa destructor mites in a colony. That, for example, if you could get all of your drones and use them to get the mites to go to the drones and you remove those, you understand it's exponentially more effective than just pulling and disposing of drone brood. Caging them, letting them emerge, and using them at the second tier to attract varroa destructor mites to the bodies of two to three day old drones and then removing them. Because here's the other thing. Here's why it, you shouldn't feel bad about caging them under this, uh, this setup, right? Uh, because part of the study too, and they, they physically counted mites, drones, everything else. It was very interesting. Uh, drones were flying. Now remember drones aren't mature enough to go out and mate right away. So they have kind of a hardening off phase, a maturing phase, right? But they were finding drones that were two or three days old in other colonies. Nothing drifts like a male bee because they land on landing boards of all different colonies and hives around. And most backyard beekeepers and sideliners have lots of hives available right in a very close proximity to one another. And so we often find foreign drones landing on other drone uh, landing under other colony landing boards and they're welcomed and then they're feeding. Now, the good news about the drones is that uh, they're not necessarily spreading disease themselves. And that's because through trophallaxis, when they're getting their feed, they're never giving. These are male bees. They're takers only. So the only thing they give is when they mate. The rest of the time, they're takers. So when they do trophallaxis, and you want to know who's receiving resources during trophallaxis, the one that sticks out the proboscis and their tongue, that's the receiver. Drones only receive. And why is that important? Because if they're spreading diseases through the hive, trophallaxis is one method that disease gets spread. The good news is drones are only takers. Therefore, they're receiving from a potentially sick nurse bee. The drone is not spreading that back to them. But what they are spreading when they go to other hives is the potential varroa destructor mite. Because as that drone gets older, right, it's less... Uh, appealing to the mite. So now when that drones visits what? So here's a dispersal that's happening by drones. The drone goes to another colony. Where's it going to get fed? Because drones don't feed themselves. They're going to those nurse bees. Now as the drone gets older, this is not in the video by the way, this is my thinking. As the drone gets older um, and it's on those brood frames with the nurse bees of another colony trying to be fed, What's the varroa destructor mite that's potentially still in the body of that drone going to do? Hop off and scoot around on that uh, new colony's uh, brood frames because the drone's older. It's lost its appeal. Now let's fast forward into the year. Fewer drones, same number of mites, let's say. This is why, or one of the reasons why they may be 
increasing their numbers in a colony when it comes to our mite counts. And this is covered in the video. When you're counting your bees at the end of the year, how many people are totally struck when they did a mite count earlier on in the year and this colony had like one or two out of 300 bees tested. But here we are at the end of the year, out of the blue, all of these Varroa destructor mites are showing up on the nurse bees and it looks like you're a mite farmer now. But here's what's interesting and why I'm excited is because the drones are being cast out. The drones are dwindling in numbers. The drones are disappearing from the colonies at the end of the year or during any dearth period. So when there's a dearth period or it's at the end of the year and they start casting out the drones, any mites that are on the bodies of the drones, where do they go? Right to your nurse bees. What are you counting? You're counting the varroa mites on nurse bees. So I agree with this title of this video that why don't we sample drones? Well, because they're scooting all over the place unless you trap them. So instead of a queen isolation cage, and I'm going to put a link down in here because those things are for sale at betterbee.com. I get nothing for that. I mean, no, you know, it's not an affiliation thing or anything like that. I bought it myself. I like the design of it. And here's a new use for it. Not a queen isolation cage, a drone trapping cage, and a Varroa destructor mite magnet system. That's what I'm calling it. So I know that's a lengthy opening. Why? Because it's very important to me. Because if you think for one minute I'm not going to be doing this in my bee yard, you're dreaming. Because I have a chance <clears throat> to get a pile of uh, Varroa destructor mites out there. And this is brand new to me, brand new to you. I haven't tested it. So if you're going to try it out, let me know. In fact, write down in the comments section if you plan to try this out. And if it makes sense to you, it makes sense to me. I think it's going to work. I think that this study partnered with this piece of equipment, how Varroa destructor mites behave towards the drones, and then using this to contain the drones. I know I'm being redundant, but I'm excited and I wanna press my point home in case somebody misses it. I don't know how many of those cages they have at uh, Better Bee, but I will tell you this, before I tell you guys that, I always reach out to find out what they have and I order my own because I take care of myself first because that's the golden rule or something that you have to take care of yourself before others. So that is super interesting. I'm really excited because it's something new, you know, and, and it's a non-chemical method potentially of knocking the drone numbers flat in your colonies and who doesn't want to do that? So if you're a natural beekeeper, whatever you are, maybe you won't believe in caging drones. I'm just throwing it out there. You don't want to do it. You have the potential, remember, to just knock them out and let the drones live. They revive after like 20 minutes and they start scooting around again and they'll be begging for food. So you're going to have to put them back on landing board somewhere. But it lets you physically look at them and uh, you, they're these really fine tweezers. You can physically pull off the Varroa destructor mites. They come off pretty easy and they're already not happy because you hit them with CO2, which is non-lethal. So if you want to turn them loose again, there you go. Options are on the table. So let's jump into questions that were turned in today. I'm still, I just want to get that information out there because I think it's really cool. I think that's something that <clears throat> is uh, groundbreaking. So thank you, Dr. Zach Lamas, and also thank you, 
to uh, the SBGMI Media YouTube channel for sharing that uh, presentation. Very in informative and uh, of course the fact that I had a viewer that took the time to send me a message through my messaging system and tell me that this uh, video was out there and asking for my thoughts about it. Well, my thoughts are, I think they're really onto something. I think it's gonna be great. Question number one, here comes from uh, Clarissa, and it says, is it safe to use oxalic acid vapor on hives with honey supers and brood? And so there are two questions here, but I'll answer that one first. Now, any kind of treatment for your bees, it's for the varroa destructor mite, and let me just say for Clarissa, do what I just talked about this time of year. Try it. What a great way to get them under control. Anyway, uh, state by state. Some states have still not approved oxalic acid vaporization or oxalic acid as a treatment. There's the spray method. There's the dribble method, which doesn't require that you wear any respiratory protection. They're just less effective as the oxalic acid vaporization delivery is. And uh, much as I said, even years before they approved oxalic acid vaporization for treatment with honey supers on, um, the testing had always been, the Food and Drug Administration didn't care about it. And that's because the oxalic acid that was found in honey pre and post treatment, open or capped, uh, was the same. In other words, there was no measurable or significant difference in the oxalic acid presence in the honey pre and post treatment. So now that I've said that, what you're really limited by is going to be uh, what your state allows. Department of Agriculture governs that, food, not food and drug, but uh, the um, EPA may be involved in it. It is a pesticide. So you have to decide what's being allowed and not. And the reason it's already there in your honey is because it's already there on so many plants, which means it's already in your hive, which means its levels are very low. And uh, unless you have some kind of personal sensitivity to oxalic acid, which would also mean that you wouldn't be eating carrots and things like that. So uh, it's approved uh, federally. States can also tighten those approvals and limit the use of things. So not every state has it, but for me here, state of Pennsylvania, it's approved with honey supers on. Although, uh, once your honey supers are on and things are building up, your treatment uh, schedule is a little off. Your best chances to treat with oxalic acid evaporations, of course, is during a dearth period. Um, early spring is brooding up period. So now we have another tool, a mechanical, physical, practical tool. And of course, midsummer, for example, you might have a dearth where you live and the brood would be small and then you could do a single treatment again. Uh, you have to do multiple treatments if you have brood and of course, honey supers, uh, just add more space, more places for your bees to disperse into. And the whole goal is to get oxalic acid onto as many surfaces inside your hive, including the bees as possible. So wherever those little varroa destructor might step, they're taking on board oxalic acid and they can't handle it. It's not hurting your bees. It's not hurting your queens. Uh, when we talk about Formic Pro, for example, lots of stories about Formic Acid, Formic Pro damaging queens. And so the argument there is for those who use the Formic Pro pads, and I was listening to Dr. Robin Underwood give a presentation, and she was commenting that the single pad method, and she's from Penn State, 
She's an extension education uh, director or something like that, coordinator. Uh, if we use the single pad method, so that's one pad directly on your brood, and then after 10 days, just follow the label. So don't quote my recommendation here. You always have to follow the label. You can remove that single pad and put the next pad on for another 10 days or whatever the recommended duration is of exposure. And uh, what she said is that was not proving very effective in getting through the, uh, the caps. So capped brood, which is one of the reasons we count on that treatment, is the fact that it's effective through the brood that's capped and getting the varroa destructor mites that are in there actively reproducing. Uh, so what did work was the double dose. So two pads, single dose, 10 days, you know, double dose, 10 day period. And it's very important that that stuff not be beyond its shelf life. I have an upcoming interview with Dr. Underwood. We're going to talk about lots of cool stuff like that. So um, oxalic acid vaporization is effective when the mites are out and exposed. And more is not always better. So that's, uh, that's it for that one. And uh, the question, here we go. I've watched you mention several times. This is from Grilling Network is the YouTube channel. I've watched you mention several times, and you even mentioned it when you attended our Los Angeles bee meeting with regards to QMP. The LA County beekeepers, thank you so much for having me uh, present to your club. Uh, QMP, by the way, is queen mandibular pheromone. It's a synthetic pheromone sold by Better Bee. Maybe sold other places too, but it's also called Temp Queen. It's a synthetic pheromone. I was wondering if it could be used as a swarm lure, meaning can I use it instead of Swarm Commander? I want to place a swarm trap in my backyard using a small piece of QMP. My concern is that I would attract bees from my own apiary without a queen. What are your thoughts, as always? Okay. Uh, do not, please let me be clear to anybody who's listening, please do not use QMP or a synthetic queen mandibular pheromone, temp queen, in a swarm trap. The way I use it is on tree branches and things that are exposed as a way to attract bees during their swarming phase when they're going to bivouac somewhere. A bivouac is temporary, it's not where they're going to permanently reside, and I'll explain the difference. Uh, it puts out a pheromone that attracts bees that are in flight. Foragers, scouts, a lot of bees just show up. In the absence of a queen, they will still collect on those branches. And what happens is they reinforce their pheromone there. So then when there is a real swarm with a queen, they do land on the temporary bivouac location because the queen that's with them, she's not directing the swarm. She's following them. So that's how we kind of manipulate them through pheromones to go into a branch that I want them to be on that's accessible to me uh, for video photography or collection and rehiving. Now, moving on, we have a swarm trap. Our goal there is to make the scouts think that this is a habitable space for the colony that may eventually swarm from the colony that these scouts are from. They do the scouting weeks in advance. So for example, we have terrible weather now, we have rain, uh, we're really not ready for swarms, but they can happen. It's coming up soon. Uh, you'll see scouts checking out cavities and things like that, looking to see if they're suitable. Now, if there is the QMP uh, pheromone in there, that little noodle, if you stick it in there, what you're going to get, though, as described, is you're going to get some stray bees. Now, it's rare in my experience that these 
foragers and scouts that are out and about, they will collect on a tree branch or an open space, or in one case, the railing of my way to be academy building. Because I finished playing with the QMP, I got lazy, I left it on the railing on the porch, and then I went inside. The next day, I'd forgotten that I did that. The next day, I went out to that building, and I thought, oh man, there's a swarm on the railing. And it looked like a package of bees. There were thousands of bees there. And then I went over to the railing and I looked over the side and on the ground, there was another clump, a softball sized clump of bees. So the railing and the ground under it. So we had residual pheromone on the railing. And then what happened is they knocked that little noodle off because it was just that little green QMP noodle. It fell on the ground and then a bunch of them glommed onto it on the ground. So it really demonstrated the effectiveness of that temp queen at drawing foragers from the air to an open gathering space. Because I did do the other thing where I thought, I'll just put the noodle inside an empty beehive, a nucleus hive in this case, and then I'll get a bunch of bees to just move in there. They'll think there's a queen and they'll volunteer and they'll all go in and then they'll start building comb and everything. And uh, it didn't happen. They won't do that. But they will gather in an open space on a tree branch, on a fence post, on a porch railing. Now, maybe they would gather on top of a hive box if you want to set it on there. But that's kind of rare. I think they look for something that's got a little bit of an overhang, a little bit of shelter around it when they gather. But uh, definitely don't use it trying to attract a swarm because at the very best, at the most effective, it's going to gather a bunch of foragers and workers without a queen because they think the box is occupied. That's what the pheromone is telling them. But what that really taught me is those bees aren't faithful. They willy-nilly abandon their queens and just join another group out of the blue no regard for their parent colony. So go back to Swarm Commander. Better than Swarm Commander. Or just as good. Um, put in brood comb that's empty. Things like that. Question number three. Jay Cox from Tennessee. Question regarding moving beehives. Due to new additions, the farm, I need to move the beehives about 30 to 40 yards from the current location. I've been inching them along, but that process is taking much more time and energy than I expected. With the flow around the corner, I wondered if there is a fast method to move the bees while keeping them on the property. Because of course that's a magic fix. Load them all up, haul them miles away, temporarily stage them there, and then uh, after a week or two, bring them all back. So, what are you going to do? Now, I've said I like the, if she just has a, a couple of hives, I like those garden carts. Put the beehives on the garden carts. They have a capacity of like 1,200 pounds. And then uh, you roll them two feet a day until you get them where you want them to be. Now, if you're running out of patience, you want to move them more than that. Uh, when you move your hives, if you can change the bottom board. So here's what I would do. If you're trying to get them to reorient and think they're in a new place, change some part of their configuration dramatically. 
So one of the easiest things to change is, of course, the entrance. Some people uh, put twigs and branches and obstacles in front of the entrance when they put it in a new location. You do this move overnight. Better than that, do this move when you have bad weather coming. So right now, where I am, we have storms coming, high winds, heavy rain, and it's going to get cold again, of course. Great opportunity to move your stuff. Uh, because the bees are going to stay inside anyway, the longer they're inside, the more likely they are to come out and reorient when they come out. So if you can change the bottom board, change the entrance configuration, the location of the entrance, something like that, that goes against what I tell people to do when they're trying to create stability in their hives. But now we're destabilizing them, we're moving them to a new location. What happens to the bees that are out there uh, if you just go for broke, move everything, forget everything everybody said. We'll have foragers coming back and, and circling in figure eight, you know, and they're, they seem to have primacy of memory. In other words, what they learn first is hard and fast, and, and it's hard for them to change the way they think. So we're talking about the foragers. These are the oldest bees in your hive. So you can have some comfort in knowing that um, you're not losing your prime bees, your youngest bees, the new brood that's developing and things like that, and the house cleaning and all the interior working bees that aren't foraging yet. Those are going to be with you and they're not going to take off and disappear. So let me give you some comfort. Let's say you don't want to change a darn thing. You're going to move the hives to where they're going to be and you're going to set them up on your property and it's only 30 to 40 yards away. What did I just talk about before? They're not faithful that in the absence of a hive, uh, they'll kind of land on any landing board and often be welcomed in, which is weird. Why would a forager from another colony be welcomed in? Well, because they're bringing nectar and pollen with them. If they're bringing resources, they get accepted. If they're freeloaders and they show up with absolutely nothing on there, the guard bees are likely to reject them. You'll notice sometimes when a strange bee lands on a landing board of a colony that they don't belong to. How do you know? You know, maybe it's the color of the bee, whatever. Uh, guard bees will arrest them on the spot. And then two or three guard bees get on the one bee. And you know what you see, the bee that doesn't belong there? It doesn't just, hey, you guys know me and scoot right in, like the bees, the resident bees do. The bees that land on the board that are unfamiliar get stopped by TSA. And uh, they check them out, and they're ready to bite their feet. They've got mandibles open. They're ready to go. But what happens is uh, they go all over them, and then guess what we talked about earlier? Trophallaxis. You'll see a tongue come out. Who stuck the tongue out? The guard bee. So what are they doing? You bring something with you? What is it? What's it taste like? Is it worth something? They have good stuff. There's pollen on their corbicula. This is a good bee. You are welcome to our society because they're bringing resources with them. They're not coming needing, they're coming giving, they're providing. So then they get a pass. But that, if you really watch landing boards, it is a lot of fun. And you'll see the bee that's trying to gain entry that doesn't really belong there. They pause and they don't try to fly away until the biting starts. So if things go bad and they decide that we don't want you and you're not bringing resources to the colony, then they start biting them. And then when that happens, the bee goes, oh, I'm found out and they take off. But we know that they will join any colony because that's what they're doing with the QMP lure. They're joining a noodle that's synthetic. It's not even, there's no queen. That's not their colony. But yet by the hundreds, if not thousands, they'll glom onto that. So we know that uh, they eventually find a place to live. So I don't want you to feel bad about that. All you do is you lose some of your foraging strength 
So when you've moved a colony like that, you may see little to no landing board activity for several days, if not a full week, uh, before things get back in the full swing again. And that's because they have to retrain and get some uh, new foragers going out there before things happen. This is also why when you hive a swarm, for example, uh, you don't see a lot of landing board activity right away sometimes. And that's because they're regrouping and hopefully you've provided syrup and resources for them to help with that transition. But uh, there's a lot going on and don't feel bad about it because here's another thing I want you to think about. For people that worry about the bees that are left behind, so to speak, if it were true <clears throat> that those foragers did not know where to go and therefore returned to the spot where their home once was, right? And then they just, you know, stop using their wings and they, they just die there. Do you come back and do you find hundreds, if not thousands of bees just dead, you know, on the ground right where the hive used to be? No, you don't. Because they don't give up like that. They're pheromone-based and they're going to go and they're going to find a new home. It's just not necessarily going to be the one that they came out of. So they're not going to die and just, you know, be in piles of, you know, dead bees right where that hive was before. So, things to think about, lots of options, <clears throat> but you could just go and move them all at once. If you're fed up and you're worried about kicking things off, take your losses in one hit and just move them all. Question number four comes from Brad from Chester, New Hampshire. Uh, my question is for my brother who is starting beekeeping this year and plans to place his two hives in his fenced chicken run because it is already protected by an electric fence. Just wondering if this is a good idea for the chickens. Well, it depends, first of all, how big is the chicken run? My chickens are not worried about my bees at all. They walk through the bee apiary. They walk under hives, they walk around hives, they pick at the grass around them. It'd be great if they groomed all the grass down around the hive uh, stands for me, that would be awesome. Uh, the key here is we're talking about chickens that are now in a run, which means they're caged, they're fenced. Uh, what we want to avoid is chickens bothering your bees uh, to the point where the bees come out and attack them. Very rare. This would happen with Africanized colonies. It does not happen in my experience with the bees that I keep. So if I were setting them up in a run inside an electric fence situation, I would make sure that the landing board uh, is right up against the fence facing out so that the bees are flying in and out of the run, but really right through the fence, which is immediately in front of them. I have a fence situation like this, but it's not because of bees. It's because of agriculture. I have a woven wire fence with a hot top wire, potentially hot. It's turned off right now. But uh, the bees fly through the fence coming and going. So if you had livestock inside that fenced area, it would be natural to face your beehives to the south push them right up against your south fence and let them come and go through the fence. It's perfectly fine for the bees. And just keep an eye on them. I mean, chickens have feathers to protect them. It would really have to be a major situation for your bees to go after your chickens to the point where they could harm them. Uh, so you would observe them over a period of time, see how things work out, but I don't see a reason why that could not work. Now think about this, anytime you're gonna to tend to your beehives, if you're opening hives, if you're doing maintenance and things like that, you're probably gonna be locking your chickens up in their coop and they're not gonna have access to the run. So for that day, you're gonna keep your chicken hen doors closed and then you're gonna go do your inspections with your bees and things like that. Uh, 
which is not going to happen until the afternoon. So it's a long day for your chickens. It would be better if you didn't put them inside the chicken run, but it's doable. You just have to now work around the chickens all the time. Question number five, Matt from Reedsburg, Wisconsin. My daughter and I have been watching your videos for the last three years. Thank you. Thanks for watching. And uh, do you remove honey in the spring from the hives that have made it through winter? And if so, what time and how much honey do you leave them with? We have been having a two deep box configuration for winter and there's usually been excess honey in the hive in the spring. Okay, so you have the option to leave that honey right there and then of course expand the hive. So that's what's coming up. That's what people are gonna be dealing with. We're gonna be dealing with rapid reproduction, rapid brood buildup, and then of course the increase in the storing of resources. So once the new nectar and everything is coming in and once they're turning that into honey inside the hive, they're not touching the old capped honey, so it's just there. So you could feasibly remove it, or you can leave it on and then super the hive as that fills up. Uh, if you decide to remove it, it's good honey. I did a recent experiment with my honey. Somebody asked me um, also recently, what do you do with your honey that you get? How do you process it? Well, here's the thing. In springtime or some of the winter honey that we stored that we didn't get to uncap in time, because let's face it, my uh, honey processing center is a garage. It's not a garage where I keep my car, but it's a garage. So uh, when it's cold, it's cold. It's not, there's no heating in there. But I do have a heating room that I use. It's a portable one. Vivo Sun, I think it might be called. It's right, you know, opposite me or it's 30 feet away. So what I do there is it has a rolling rack and I took a whole honey super that had some of the honey was starting to set to crystallize. So I'm kind of giving you a full story here just in case somebody's curious when they get their spring honey that it doesn't look like when you go to uncap it, it's set so it won't actually run out. So what could you do? So I put it on the rack and I put a small um, heater in there, very cheap, like 1500 watt heater, whatever they are and it oscillates, and then I have fans, of course, blowing down for the top, and a dehumidifier. And what I did was uh, figured out when it would run up to about 109 degrees Fahrenheit. 19 to 110 should be your upper limit. That's the max. If you're trying to keep all the aroma and the flavors of the honey, and you're trying to keep it as raw as possible. But the reason that I did this is I wanted to know, would the honey that sat in the cells reliquify. It seems like it should because when we take honey in jars and it's set, right? It's like this. If you put that in 105 to 110 degrees Fahrenheit in water, uh, it reliquifies. So if I brought it up to that temperature in the frames, wouldn't it also reliquify set honey in those cells? What do you think happened? It worked. It absolutely worked. So then I was able to uncap and remove the honey from those. And so from that super, which was kind of a loss, it was just a winter sitting around partial super. And uh, that's also the reason why you run it through a dehumidifier. Any uh, open cells, for example, we want to dry those down. So it actually got down to a 
Once the temperature was elevated in there, it got down to 16% relative humidity. So it was really interesting. So it was a satisfactory test. It worked. We reliquified honey in the cells and then uncapped and extracted the honey. And now we have jars of honey from that. So that works. And so I'm telling you that because you may encounter set honey because what happened late in the year where I live is that we have asters and goldenrod and they are known to crystallize. And that's why spring honey have a couple of options. When you pull it out, what can you do? Well, you can cycle it back to your bees when a dearth hits. And by that, I mean open feeding. Uh, but then they also have to overcome the set honey. They're not going to consume that as fast as they would liquid honey. So if it's liquid and you want to feed it back to your bees, there's no loss there. So, and uh, it's surplus honey. You can use it. You can extract it. Use it yourself. You can, if it's foundationless, you can make cut comb. Uh, there are a lot of things you can do with it, but you want to verify that it's that it's liquid and it's consumable. So um, that's what I do. I pull off, if there is a hive that has a big surplus of honey, I pull those frames when the dandelions are in bloom. And I don't mean one or two dandelions spread around the yard that just happen to start flowering. I mean when you see hundreds of blooms of dandelions and the nectar flow is on for real that's when you pull your surplus honey off. And why do you wait until then? Because you know that they're going to have more than enough and they're going to replace it fast. So if you can uncap and extract on a nice hot day, um, you'll be back in business. You can put those frames right back on and you get honey for yourselves. So that works great. Question number six, Quinn from Johnstown, PA. Let's see, I'm itching to buy some additional items for beekeeping since the weather is finally starting to break and I have a nuke on order that will be going into a new 10 frame Flowhive 2 Plus. On my current 8 frame Flowhive 2 Plus, I have a standard Langstroth medium and the dimensional difference drives me nuts and I can't use the nice flow roof until the flow super goes on. In episode 193, towards the end, you said you were working on a video showing how you use all flow components so you don't have to mix and match with standard Langstroth equipment. I don't believe it is out yet, but would you mind leaking your solution for the medium super in this all flow setup? I have considered buying Flowhive 2 Plus Deeps and cutting them down, but I was wondering if your solution was different. Um, <clears throat> so that's interesting, and you're right. That video's not out yet, but you're already on to what my fix is. Here's the thing about Flowhive, and you're right. They're a quarter inch narrower. So in other words, the outside dimensions of the hive don't match up perfectly with, you know, Man Lake, Dadent, Better Bee, whatever wood boxes you're getting they're not going to match the flow hive. They do front to back, they don't side to side. So yeah, that's exactly what I did. Uh, and I'm behind the curve. I haven't put out my video yet, but the flow hives are put together this way. And that's because it's part of my uh, keeping bees in cold climates with flow hives. And uh, what I did is I bought a bunch of uh, uh, brood boxes from them. So these are flow hives back here, doo -doo, up there, and it's sitting on, there's some brood boxes there. They don't make a medium box. And it's interesting because I actually wrote to them and I described in detail all the things I wish we had uh, to match it up for cold weather beekeeping. And they were actually on board. They were very interested in everything I had to say. 
there's no room under that nice gabled roof, which is why in my backyard where I have those hives, you don't see the gabled roofs on them anymore. And that's because I need feeder shims. I need space for feed uh, for wintertime. So they're not going to stay on in wintertime. I need insulation. I need fondant. I need whatever. So here's the thing. Yeah, I buy the deep brood boxes and this is what's coming up in the video. It's the deep brood box. And all I do is measure down from the top and I make it at one of the box joints, right? So the depth for medium frames, and then I cut it there. So now I have two things. I've got the rabbit joints there for the medium uh, frames, right? And I put that on top of my deep brood box. And then that piece that's left over from the bottom, that goes up on top of the inner cover and that becomes my feeder shim. So it creates space so you can have, if you're starting off with a package or something like that, now you can put syrup up, up there, a rapid round. Even the rapid round didn't fit, and that's on their largest hive. The roof rested on the edges of it. So kind of frustrating, but if you buy the brood boxes like that, everything matches, it's the same material. So if you've got the cedar, if you've got the two plus and it's the cedar version, you have the option to get hoop pine. And I think they did Paloma wood for a while, but I don't think they're doing that anymore. I think it's hoop pine or cedar. So getting a deep box, cutting off the bottom, you're good to go. Need a table saw to make that cut really nice. And then I finish it all with eco wood before I put it back together. And that's it. But the only drawback too, and it's not a big problem, but you'll see the edges now of your inner cover. So you want to take your inner cover and also treat that with eco wood or whatever your wood treatment is, because that is not made out of cedar. So... All the cedar components, you have the option to treat them or not treat them with a preservative. And uh, so eco wood for that. And uh, I did that and it's holding up because if you look at the videos that I have where I show my way to be Academy building, you see a really tall, dark kind of walnut colored uh, Flow Hive 2 Plus. And that is the one with the winter configuration. It's got the deep box, the medium, the Flow Super, the feeder shim and the gable roof on top of that. It's just been so cold and I am such a comfort nut that I don't like to go out there when it's 32 degrees or 29 degrees because that building is not heated and I don't want to make a video in the cold. So it's coming up, but I can make videos out there when it's raining. So that's the good news. So there you have it. That is what I do. You're on to me. It's not much of a stretch because that's the equipment they already make. Just make a single cut and now we have a shim and a medium all together. So, and it'll match your system. Question number seven comes from Nancy in Harleysville, PA. I have a question about winter bees. At what time during the spring do we expect to see those die off? I know a lot of folks are having booming hives here in the Southeast Pennsylvania. Curious how many of those bees are winter bees along with newly emerged worker bees? And the clean answer to that is we don't know. Uh, those who study the fat-bodied winter bees, which are the ones that keep things going, they can actually brood up in the absence of pollen and resources in the hive that we need that we associate with a spring buildup. And that's because the nutrition is stored in their bodies and the fat cells, and they have more fat cells than other bees. We can't tell by looking at them Who's who? The other thing is when they die, we don't see them because they fly away and just don't come back. We do see undertaker bees dragging out dead bees that didn't make it. You know, they reach the end of their life while they're still inside the hive and they can't fly out for whatever reason. 
and uh, the undertaker bees drag them out. But those fat-bodied winter bees should be at the end right now because uh, we, unless you dissect them and you want to get your microscope out and see the fat store, the fat stores in the bodies of those bees, you would see that in the fall. It would be clear because those resources would be full and they would be maxed out because they're going into winter. But at this time of year, I'm not sure that that's so distinctive. And I think that would be knowledge for knowledge sake uh, because you're going to see a rapid transition. How do you know if they're brooding up nice and they're getting the resources they need? Because they're bringing in pollen at a high rate, more than 10 loads of pollen per minute then we know that they're really brooding up nice. Now, if you've got a colony that's doing absolutely nothing, it's a point of concern. So, but as far as, you know, which of those are fat-bodied winter bees, we really don't know. There's no way to just look at them and know. Uh, in fact, we only know that they even exist because scientists say they do. And that's because they dissected them and they looked at where they're storing fat. Those bees have uh, more fat cells on their heads, their thorax, and their abdomen in surplus so they can survive winter and keep your bees going and it's not just winter time they do that in any period of dearth your queen decides when she makes those and that's another interesting unexplained genetic decision i don't know how a queen produces a fat-bodied winter bee i don't know if it's nutrition that the nurse bees give it there's a different pheromone i don't know what goes on it's way beyond my pay grade when it comes to how they set those up, we know they exist because they show up when you dissect them and we know when they exist because they show up at times uh, just leading into famine. So, Question number eight comes from Pam, La Crosse, Wisconsin. Just watched your interview with Mr. Ed. What are your thoughts of putting a lean-to over the hive? I get told to put them in full sun. I'm told to have them in afternoon shade. It seems a hive in a tree would have cover above. Thoughts? And that's true. Uh, cavities in trees are definitely in the shade. But that entire interior configuration is very different than what we do. And that's because they're tiny. Overall, the average space occupied by bees in trees is about equivalent of 10 gallons. But you're right. They're often in... Uh, Trees that lose their leaves in wintertime, so they get sun in winter, and then they get shade in summer. And uh, we're talking about Jeff, which is Mr. Ed. If you want to look at his YouTube, I'm sure most of you have already seen him. Um, he does, he says that the lean-tos, the colonies that he has under lean-tos, but of course he's in the south, he's in Louisiana, um, that they do better than those that are in the open. Now, I have uh, hives that are somewhat shaded. In other words, they get morning shade and afternoon shade and uh, other hives that get full sun all day long. And I can tell you that here in Pennsylvania, right, my colonies that are exposed facing south and not in the shade of trees, which others are, uh, they do better overall through the years. They do better. So we get, we get continuous trends of the colonies that are in the shade of trees struggling more and the colonies that are in full sun, summer and winter, uh, do much better. So we're talking about Wisconsin, that part of Wisconsin. I can't imagine full sun being, for example, I would be looking at shade and lean-tos and things like that if I were in the desert southwest, if I were in any of the border states, if I were in an arid region, right? 
then uh, it makes sense to me, but I wouldn't do a lean-to. I think for some of those more arid areas, uh, more desert-like climates, I would use what they call, uh, I think they're sail canopies. Uh, rain and stuff passes right through them, but, uh, and wind passes through them, which is really important. We don't want to stop the wind 100% because now whatever you've configured has to take a full wind load. And uh, we have to consider that when we're looking at structure and thinking about what we're setting up just to provide shade. So just shade is the goal. Then I like those uh, sail canopies, they're called. And then you can put that up and they get partial light. There's enough shade. It's a 15 degree drop on average. And uh, so if I were in a climate like that, but I don't know what's going on up in that part of the United States and Wisconsin. I would... I used to live in Kenosha. I would consider that uh, we don't get really extreme heat. Therefore, I would opt to put my beehives in a place where they get full sun year round there. Just my personal recommendation, but of course you can do, you can do anything because they're your own bees. But in the South, uh, Jeff has said that the lean-to works, but I also noticed he didn't put a lean-to over all of his hives, but then we're talking about hundreds of hives. So, Midday sun, it does get hot, it gets hot here, uh, but I, I deal with that by making sure that my hives all have insulated covers on them. And that way the midday sun, the heat from that doesn't transmit in. So when you're thinking about your hive configurations, for those of you who are just picking equipment right now and setting things up, the commercial hive tops, if we're talking about your standard inner cover, and then we've got a telescoping lid on top of that, and then just got a metal clad on that, do a thermal scan on one of those one day when it hits mid 80s. I've had readings on top of those hives go to 135 degrees Fahrenheit midday. Now you have to, there's no insulation that comes with that, by the way. So when you buy those configurations, you think they're ready to go. You put them together you put your bees in them and, and you're set. Bees can keep up with it if there's a lot of fresh water available. So that's something else I'm working on this year is a wall of water, it's called. So... Stay tuned for that. But uh, if they have water resources, now here's the thing that I want you to think about, sun and shade. Insulation on top of your hive can manage that midday sun for you. So it means that that heat won't transmit into the hive if you have a nice R factor there. And you can use double bubble. You can use a polystyrene cover, which is what I have on those Langstroth hives right now and uh, it won't transmit that heat in there. Now let's say the heat does transmit. Let's say you leave it as configured when you buy it from the store. No insulation on that lid, no insulated inner cover. It's a standard inner cover, standard telescoping lid, and there's your honey super right under it, and that surface is 130 plus degrees Fahrenheit. Your bees are consuming a lot of resources to fan the air around and spread and evaporate water. So what they're doing is they're bringing in fresh water from the outside and they're frantically painting it all over the surfaces. Of course, the brood is the most critical, so that gets their attention first. But they're using evaporation and air circulation to keep everything cool enough. You don't want your honey supers to melt out. So I understand the thinking, but I think it's easier just to go ahead and insulate the hives individually and their covers, plus better for the bees. Self-contained units. <clears throat> question number nine, last question for the day. Question for next Friday. Why are people leery, and this is from 
Christina Hunt Lady. Why are people leery of bee packages? They are cheaper than nukes, and you have complete control over the size of the box and the condition of the frames. And uh, you're right. Uh, bee packages often get a bad rap. And uh, Dr. Leo Sharashkin, a lot of people say, the last thing you should be buying is a package. It comes through the mail, though. It's convenient. Uh, the one year that I lost all my hives in wintertime because the storm came through and I didn't have them strapped down. I was new to beekeeping and uh, all my hives fell over in the snow and separated themselves and laid out there for hours because I was teaching. And uh, lost all my hives. So I thought, man, I have to get new bees in here and uh, buying packaged bees through the mail seemed pretty easy to do. And uh, I contacted somebody who brought up packaged bees from the south and met me in a McDonald's parking lot. And we did the transfer there. So the thing about packaged bees is, and why people are kind of leery about them, is it's really up to the seller uh, what quality of bees are going to be in the package. For those who don't know what it is, uh, they come in plastic bee buses or a wooden screened package, and they can come right through the mail, which uh, some mail handlers are not a fan of. I know UPS drivers two years ago that actually let packages of bees fall off the truck. And then people just turned in their, their claims and, uh, you know, got reimbursed from Man Lake. That's where those packages came from that year. But the packages were flawed somehow, even though they were taped with uh, shipping tape. And so handlers don't like them. You can't uh, always count on them getting good treatment in transit. So that's one of the risks, too, of package bees. And uh, the other thing is you need to do a Google search and do a YouTube search even and uh, see making packages. See what some of the commercial uh, beekeepers are doing and you're going to see a big metal funnel system and you're going to see lots of uh, beehives and they're going to be shaking bees into these funnels and mixing all these thousands of bees together. And uh, so often this is a way for some commercial beekeepers to recoup losses. They have an option, for example, if they've come out of uh, pollination in the almond groves, uh, they can cycle back and sell packages and partner them up with queens, which means they have a queen breeding operation. If this is all in-house, it's a great moneymaker. So, and the reason is you've got bees that are otherwise no longer useful. If you've lost your queen, you're going to requeen, and it depends on what the rest of the year looks like for you. How could they crunch numbers and where could they get their max profit for the use of the bees that they now have? So they can shake out anything that's queenless, anything that has no brood, right? Uh, shake out all those bees, create packages with them, divvy them up by the pound, and uh, add a queen in a cage and ship them off. So one of the reasons that uh, people are leery is some of the people are not that scrupulous. Big surprise. There are unscrupulous beekeepers in some cases. This is why you need to know where your packages are coming from, who's selling them, and uh, how they put their packages together. And are they treating the bees? For example, are you getting bees that are already loaded with mites? And uh, in some cases, even uh, small hive beetles have shipped with packages. And I used to recommend somebody that would sell just packaged bees without a queen so that people could then pick their queens and install those, right? Um, but then several people wrote to me about that particular seller that they came loaded with varroa destructor mites and small high beetles. Now, I don't know that, so it's hearsay. Therefore, I can't name the person. But uh, it came frequently enough that I thought, wow, they're shipping terrible bees. 
Um, now the good news is uh, when you get your package of bees and uh, the queen is your investment. So the queen that you bought, the genetics of that queen, um, she's really what you're buying. The package of bees, that's a support system for her. Uh, they've been spreading her pheromone in transit. So if that's a couple of days, that's all the longer they've been exposed to the queen. And uh, of course, 30 days after you've set up your package and got them installed and everything's going nicely, uh, every new bee that comes out of there is going to be from the queen. So eventually the queen is the source of your entire colony of bees, barring drift and other things that go on. But uh, that's why some people are leery of packages. Now you would be way ahead if, because it's the other thing, remember I said that the guy that uh, met me in the parking lot brought those bees up from the south. If I'm looking for bees that can manage my climate, if I'm looking for bees that are, are hardy locally and that I can know a little bit about the history of them, are they good with Varroa, are they easy to work with, are they hot, all these different traits that come out, uh, you'll know, and they're locally adapted, so you end up way ahead, and you get those bees early in spring. That's the other reason that a lot of people are leery about packages. Most of them are coming out of the South and they're coming out of California. If you buy from Man Lake, for example, most of them are coming from the Oliveras family in uh, California. And so they have set shipping dates. There's nothing you're going to do about it. So if you happen to have 28 degrees snow and sleet and those packages of bees shipped, you're going to see them. Hopefully your phone number's on it. Hopefully it's going to your post office, but if they're coming UPS, they're not going to call ahead and let you meet the truck. They're going to be sitting in the snow, in the rain, up against your house or wherever. So, um, and it might be the very day that you have to be somewhere else, that you've got other commitments, and then you get this notification on your phone, your package is shipped, deliveries today. So when the packages come, you don't have any control over that unless you went and physically picked them up yourself. Now, if you're physically going to pick them up yourself, why not get a nucleus hive instead? Uh, because nucleus colonies don't ship. That's because they don't ship well. They don't handle shipping well. That's a full colony of bees, brood, everything. And uh, so you have to go and physically get those. That's why some bee clubs get together. They find a reputable breeder. That's really important. And uh, you send a representative from your club that gets one of those big vans and they drive down and they pick up everybody's nucleus at the same time. And then they bring them all up. So you can you know, crowdsource your trip to get your packages. And there's always somebody willing to drive any number of miles to get Nucleus Hive. So uh, that's just the thinking behind it. I've had okay uh, luck with package bees at a time when I, I thought I needed to boost things. I tried to try out Saskatraz bees. The only way I was going to get those is to buy packages. There's no other option. So uh, and Saskatraz bees didn't work out for me. But now I just stick with local genetics. And when I refresh a queen, if I need one, and I, I'm not making one myself, I buy them from uh, the Bee Weaver family in Texas. And that's because I want to support their um, treatment-free breeding program there because genetics are the long game, I, I think. So uh, that's it. You want to support the company, uh, the beekeeper, the person that's doing it in a way that you think is, is right. I totally understand commercial beekeepers, number crunching, and trying to get as much as they can out of every bee under their care. And selling packages off is definitely a great way to avoid um, 
you know, wintering or feeding or taking care of bees during a dearth, and instead off they go, and uh, backyard beekeepers can take care of them. Uh, so that's it. Now we're in the fluff section. And I did a big fluff thing. Don't forget, if you're if you have not checked out that video, please watch it. I think it's very informative and can give you some great ideas on how we might be controlling row destructor mites better. The other thing is I had a problem with Hive Live fondant. And uh, what I did was I was checking the progress on all of the Hive Live fondant. The good news was none of the colonies completely emptied a packet of fondant. But I opened up one of uh, the hives and the bees were doing okay but they weren't accessing the fondant. And that's because in the middle it collapsed. So it collapsed and, and was all stuck together. So then the bees could not access the rest of it. This, what I'm holding right now, is one of the fondant packs I took off a hive yesterday. So then what I thought about is, how do I keep that open so that the bees can access it all and so it won't just collapse? Now, there were 13 hives with these on it. And only one of them had the condition, but that means it's a potential, so I'm sharing it with you. I want to talk to you about straws. These are called smoothie straws, apparently. They're nice, fat, thick straws, and you can cut them up. And then what I did was I stick those straws right into the fondant through the opening, and they serve to keep that packet open. So here's the back side of it. Straws are stuck in there and uh, it will prevent this from collapsing. It also means now, because the other instinct is, if this was collapsed in the middle, then I would just cut a bigger circle around it, and you could do that. But it won't prevent that then from also collapsing in later. Plus then it's exposed to air circulation, which means it can dry out. So by sticking straws in there, I keep it open, keep a spacer in there, and uh, the bees have access to it, and it is still covered in plastic on both sides, so the fondant doesn't dry out. So it's just a quick fix that I wanted to share with you, and the potential is that they can collapse. So in the future, I'll be cutting little, you know, one-inch pieces, inch-and-a-half lengths of this. I bought a whole box of them, of course, because they overreacted. But I'm going to cut them up, and then when I cut that little hole in the fondant packs, I'm going to go ahead and just stuff three of these in there like little spoke wheels. And uh, we'll use them as spacers, and we'll put them in there, and it still settles over the hole and still prevents the bees from getting out into that open space up in your feeder shim. So that works. Easy fix. Very inexpensive. Pollen sub. Watch for the pollen sub video. Uh, the opening sequence today was uh, at my dry pollen sub station. And uh, the bees are taking it, but we're testing now, I'm expanding it. So we're looking at three. And so we're doing AP23, which just stands for artificial pollen formula 23. It's from Dadent. We're going to use Mega B, which also comes from Better B. And uh, then we have the longstanding Ultra B dry pollen sub. And here's the thing, the sub studies that have been going on, uh, Ultra B kind of fell off the chart there. So here's the thing. I'm looking at the quality of the pollen, you know, how fine it is. Some of it's like talcum powder, like that AP23. It takes nothing to make it airborne. So it's very fine grains because someone else wrote me and said, hey, Fred, is there a chance some of that pollen is so coarse 
And the way the bees are taking it, that they're actually wearing out the brushes on the insides of their legs that they use to rub them. And my first thought was, now, what? wear out the brushes on their legs. Um, but then I thought, oh, you know what? I'll take a close look at how finely ground these are. And uh, I found that the Ultra Bee from Man Lake is very coarse. It's, it's, now, if it's the only thing you had, it would seem very fluffy and fine grained. But then when you compare it to something like AP23, uh, AP23 is very fine like talcum powder. So what that means is when the bees land on it, uh, the AP23 goes to their bodies right away. In fact, the bees that fly away with AP23 on them tend to be covered in very light pollen all over, as well as what's on their corpicula. So, and then Ultra Bee, they're onto that, and they smell a little different too. And then Mega Bee is very similar to AP23. So that's what's coming up. I'm gonna do continuing um, just observations. This is not heavy science because it's already established a nutritional value, brood buildup, and a current paper uh, published in 2022 had Mega B and AP23 side by side, and Ultra B kind of fell off the chart in comparison to those two. Now, does that mean if you have Ultra B, oh, it's no good, I'm gonna get rid of it. No, it's still good. It's just not as good. Does it mean three more Bs if you use AP23 or you know if you use Mega B? I would almost price shop them because uh, I had to buy a 10 pound tub of the Ultra B. Remember, just backyard. AP23, I have three five pound bags and then Mega B, one five pound bag. So, and Mega B was the most expensive, by the way. So, if you want to try them and create a buffet for your bees, which is exactly what I did, it's just fun to sit and watch the bees come and get it. And then, of course, when the dandelions bloom and when all the pollen shows up, uh, it's going to be interesting. So, the other thing is my shirt, Bee Informed Partnership. Okay, what's tomorrow? April Fool's Day. Don't be fooled. Watch out. Come up with new tricks, by the way. The old ones just don't work. Um, so, April Fool's Day is tomorrow and uh, don't get pranked. And the Bee Informed Partnership, this is when their loss and management survey begins. So here's what I want you to do. The more beekeepers that participate, and this is for the United States, by the way, the more beekeepers that fill out these surveys, we get a much better picture nationally what practices are working the best for your bees. This data is available to you. So we can look at it and see best practices, what's working. If someone used a treatment, that's why it is uh, loss in management. Your bees died, what were you doing? What's the environment like? What's your configuration? I think they're all geared around Langstroth hives because I did ask them about it. Do we include horizontal hives? Do we include you know, some of these other configurations? I think it's all Langstroth, but Please fill it out. Please uh, participate. Do the survey. Provide all of your information. It's not that you're going to be on some kind of tracking system and people are going to know what you're about and what you're doing. Uh, it just, it's like the more information we have, the clearer the picture, the clearer the path forward. What treatments did they use? Were they effective? What kind of mite counts did you have? Blah, blah, blah and on it goes. And so all of this stuff is very valuable. I hope that it's a nonprofit organization and they depend on beekeeper input. And uh, guess how many beekeepers there are? 
registered in the United States, 125,000. I thought that was interesting because it matched up with the number of subscribers I have. But then I thought that can't be right because only 60% of my viewers are not subscribers. So that's weird. I thought at first, wow, every beekeeper maybe is subscribed. So if you're not a subscriber, please do. Next, I'm gonna show you some fine art. This is bragging. Um, not on myself though, because uh, my wife likes to give me reminders and she posts these little stickies up where she thinks I'm going to see them. So where am I going to see it? The microwave, where I'm probably going to go and warm up some coffee or some tea or something. So she wanted to, she's like the nicest person on earth and she has hidden talents. She will not brag on herself at all. <clears throat> but she's quite an artist and a lot of people don't realize that because she hides it well. But what she did is she put on the microwave a picture of a chicken that she drew. She drew this in one day. So I thought today would be a great way to showcase her gifts and uh, to let other people see that I'm living with an artistic genius. So this is what was on the microwave yesterday. And that right there, my friends, I know that you think you're looking at a photograph of a chicken. But what I want you to know is that is hand rendered by my wife. Not only that, she didn't use a full palette. I mean, it looks like she used every color in the rainbow, but it was just a black Sharpie. Unbelievable, but true. It's like you're looking at a chicken standing in front of you that's how good it is. So I just wanted to show you that so you would realize that I reside with an artistic genius. We would say prodigy, but she's older than that. And uh, that was a drawing, a hand rendering. Um, it took her a lot of time to do that. Something about it took a half hour just to shade the upper lip and like there's more where that came from if I'll go to the prom with her. Um, so she's also trying to leverage me with her artistic ability. So I want to leave you with that and uh, thank you for being here with me today. And don't forget that bees are above average. So please have a fantastic weekend. Thank you for watching.